I have people that, you know, every year we sort of lament and we're like, man, half of the time yeah. we only see each other at your birthday. But at least we see each other at the birthday. I like to do it that way because I don't like high pressure celebrations. You know, like I don't like New Year's Eve. I hate New Year's Eve. Yeah. You're starting a year off, so you want the bar to be as high as possible. Yeah, it's yeah. just silly. The 30th anniversary is the, the show is coming up. In- yeah, we're doing the show. That's a, a pretty cool milestone in that the original guys are still together, which means a lot to all of us. We're, we've got plenty of colleagues who, you know, are on the great, you know, bandstand in the sky at this point. So it's, you know, knock on wood, it's, it's great that everybody's still alive. One of the really cool things about Spin Doctors is we've always played really well together. So the fact that it's the original guys really intrinsic to I don't know if we if if it wasn't the original guys, I don't even know if we'd be doing like a thirtieth anniversary. There were a couple of people who sort of wandered in and out at one point during mm-hmm. the band, and th- did that just completely change the chemistry? It did. And uh, at this point, like I wouldn't do it unless yeah. it was the original guys. So if somebody says they're out, then that's that's it. That's the end of it. Yeah, somebody's out. I'm out. Does that mean not playing with the other guys? I mean, once I mean we, I would be open to doing projects and yeah. stuff with them. But as the Spin Doctors, it's like each guy in this band has. First of all, is a really advanced player. Second of all, every guy you know wrote their part in all of these songs, and so they play the parts in this very nuanced kind of way. If you ever like try to note for note play somebody's part in a piece, you know, like a you know, if you're like learning guitar or something like that, you try to like play like a Jimmy Page, you know, you know, like rhythm part or something like that. It's so hard to like cop exactly what somebody's doing. In a quartet, everybody's part is so instrumental to the whole thing because there's only it's only three musical instruments and a voice, you know? You would be amazed at how much it shakes things up. When somebody else comes in and is playing it with a different feel, it just shakes up the whole thing and it just doesn't have the same nuanced kind of thing. And then the other thing, too, is that the communication in this band is such that each guy kind of cues like a hundred things during the show. Each guy has like a little subtle move that they make that sends the band in a certain direction at a certain time. You know, they either do it this way or they do it that way. We all know that like something is coming up, you know, in one direction or another. It sounds like you still got a little bit of that jam band mentality there. Absolutely. I think of the jam band school, we were among the more song oriented. And I think we have a very strong and high level of songwriting in the band. As a result, we had hit tunes and had a lot of radio play. And I think a lot of people think of us more in terms of Little Miss Can't Be Wrong and Two Princes than they do in terms of our, especially if they haven't seen us live. You moved to New York City in the late 80s, right? Yeah. Was the idea to start a pop band? Was the idea to do something that would essentially get on the radio? Yeah, I always wanted to have my tunes on the radio. But when I was a kid, you know, Led Zeppelin was on the radio, you know, and the Rolling Stones were on the radio. The landscape of pop music had a lot more rock and roll in it. The 90s was still a pretty good period for rock music on radio. Certainly, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, you didn't necessarily have to, you know, like the term pop music is so sure. loaded, especially yeah, yeah, now, yeah. you know. When I was a kid, you know, popular music yeah. just meant anything that wasn't, you know, opera or classical was like, oh, that's, you know, <laughs> you're going to, you'd be taking a guitar lesson and you'd be like, teacher would be like, well, that's, you know, a popular technique, you know. I find myself talking about the state of 
popular music and and I find myself sounding like a a very old person when I discuss it and I wonder how much of it is just kind of a natural part of of getting older and you know losing some focus on mainstream culture and how much of it is actually a, a legitimate so shift in the there's industry. There's been a, in music itself has been a, a major paradigm shift in, yeah. in, in my opinion. Up until a few decades ago like it, up until the late 20th century the underpinnings of like American popular music and rock and roll music and you know of 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 the of most music that people were listening to was blues and jazz and in the last couple of decades the underpinning of most popular music is now hip hop and um or electronic music or electronic music it is definitely different i mean it's it's definitely different when i when you know when i was a kid the stuff like my grandparents listened to was like gershwin and my dad was listening to tons of like you know black music I grew up listening to like blues and James Brown and all that stuff was, you know, all that stuff was blues scales, pentatonic scales, um, like African rhythms. The rhythm obviously, you know, is still super accentuated in, um, in all of this music in the, in the new, you know, more modern, you know, electronic and hip hop based music. But harmonically, it's shifted. And there's also this like mechanized aesthetic to it all. You know, people are so used to hearing stuff that's like rhythmically clock-like and perfect. I think my brain started shutting off when autotune came into the picture. To me, it's sort of like a, it's like Arl Cilantro, you know, it's just this, I, it, it will completely destroy a song. I, mean, I do listen to a lot of hip hop, but it seems like the, the one aspect that really isn't going to age well. No, it's not. I mean, you talk about all of these, you know, like disco music, all of these genres that were really of their time and haven't necessarily, that production choice is really putting that in a period of time. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I mean, in, in my training as a young person singing in, you know, my high school choir that ended up touring Europe and stuff like that, you know, we were a pretty successful high school choir. And it was like our, we would get like yelled at for hours about our pitch, you know, just be <laughs> like, you know, somebody would be singing flat or sharp and, and like our choir directors be like, who is that? Who is it? And he would like narrow it down and make everybody yeah. sing alone, you know. How often like, was it you? Never. Never. Nunca. I got, I have amazing pitch. Yeah. I was destined to be like a professional singer. Yeah. So I had, I had great pitch all along. I didn't even know I had great pitch until then. I was really lucky because my school had an amazing music program and I didn't even realize that until I became an adult and went out into the world and was like, yeah, my choir toured. Europe, you know, and uh, oh, in the same year, our orchestra went to Europe yeah. too. And we, we like won a competition to get there. It wasn't like... You're like, this isn't a normal experience that most yeah, people like, have. Yeah, like, oh, your choir didn't go to, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. wow, you didn't have music theory as an elective with like, you know, a, a truly great conductor breaking down Beatles songs for yeah. you, you know? You did have that rock and roll experience in there as well. I mean, they didn't shun popular music. Well, you know, we were kind of outlaws. The outlaw choir boys. Yeah, we were. You know, we they knew, like, William Trigo and Nancy Ann Perella, she was the accompanist, and the two of them were the co-heads of the band, of the, of the choir. And they knew some of us were in rock bands, and they would take us aside and give us these talks, like, you know, don't ruin your voice doing that. And we never got to the point where, like, you got to quit the band or you're out of the yeah. choir or anything like that because as long as we came in and sang our asses off we were good to go you know those are helpful tips though i mean that, that those are mistakes that a lot of rock singers make early on of you know not singing from the right place and blowing your voice out well i've been you know I, like i came up in the choir and then i joined the spin doctors and um the spin doctors are a tremendously loud band we, we've gotten better 
but back in the day we were you know ridiculously loud and um and the monitor situation the speakers that point back at yeah. At you so you can hear yourself were terrible. And so very quickly I realized I needed I needed help. So I, I've been taking voice lessons from Neil Seamer. He's in New York City since 1989. So I've had the same voice teacher for my entire career. That's nearly 30 years at this yeah. point. And you still find those lessons helpful? Oh, yeah. Look at it this way. Like I always say to people, you're not like, okay, now I'm in the, the NBA. I don't need coaching anymore. Yeah. You know, the further along you get, the more coaching you need. Are there still lessons that he can teach you or is it more of just kind of going through the exercises and make sh- making sure you're limber and practicing? Yeah, it's it's technique stuff. It's pure technique. Yeah. It's really e- easy to like fall into bad habits singing. So it's a lot of just sort of him like putting his hands on me and sort of adjusting my body and then getting me to sing through stuff. I always find new ways to screw up singing, you know, and everybody does. Everybody who sings professionally for a really long time and has a really long career they all have good training you get out of whack and also yeah he pushes me like we've been working together for such a long time so he'll push me in different interpretive directions Mm -hmm. and keep me um kind of thinking about singing in different ways and that keeps everything fresh you know i've noticed like listening to the solo record you put out last year listening to the band stuff as, as your careers have progressed that you are i mean you are going in new directions and you are you are you are trying new things and how much of that is a result of this discipline that you're being taught of you know being pushed in these new directions trying new vocal styles yeah i mean i think that i think it's sort of an inward and an outward yeah. sort of thing it's like it's it's part of my nature to try to keep, you know, kind of moving forward. And then I'm getting all this training and stuff and having these new ideas introduced. So, you know, part of it is like, well, I I take lessons because I want to keep moving forward and I keep moving forward because I take lessons. And then, you know, there's stuff, the band, you know, we all sort of push each other. and We formed this band because we were all kind of the best one of the best guys around at what we did. And we didn't form like, we're not like our friends, the Blues Traveler, who were like friends. Yeah. You know, we we're friends now, but we started <laughs> so. out. We yeah. started out like we didn't start out as friends. Though. Was it we like didn't... a flyer at Guitar Center sort of situation? Or Eric Shankman, the guitar player yeah. of the Spin Doctors, wanted John to do John Popper of the Blues Traveler, the famous like harmonica virtuoso. Yeah. Uh, wanted to do something with John, and they had like a band together. They, he wanted John to up his commitment to this band. And meanwhile, I wanted to do something with John, too. Because John was the kind of guy back then, like, you knew if John was in your combo, something big was going to happen. John was LeBron. <laughs> yeah, John was just this, like, attraction. Yeah. So you knew if he like, was he, in your band. He's the rocket ship that's going somewhere. Let's let's hitch our let's, eye with that. Yeah, definitely. Let's get him in the act. I mean, and... different for you, though, because you're, you're a singer. So, you know, I, I, it makes sense for a guitar player to want to work with him. But how, how would that work? I just kind of, like, wanted to... Do, he and I grew up together, so mm. I wanted to do like maybe like an acoustic thing okay. with him. And I wasn't looking to like settle down with John. I was more just looking to see if he wanted to do some gigs around and, and just see if he wanted to. I, I don't even think like back then I was 19, so I don't even know how clearly I could see how a band got formed. And I was so young, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. But John was like, had me and Eric kind of pushing him. So he introduced me and Eric yeah. and was like, Look, I want to do the Blues Traveler. Why don't you guys do something together? And Eric and I promptly almost got into a fist fight. Didn't talk for a year. Then I came back um, to uh, the jazz program he was in the next year. And he came up to me in the hallway. and was like, hey, I'm sorry about that bullshit last year. And yeah. stuck his hand out. I shook his hand. And he was like, you know, we have a little jam in room 206 every Friday afternoon at 2. Why don't you stop by? So Eric then asked me to do a gig with him at a frat up at 
at Columbia University. We did that gig. John Popper was on that gig, not as a permanent member of the band. We had a four-piece horn section. Aaron Comis, our drummer, so you had a was on that gig. horn section at that point? At that first gig, yeah. You're already envisioning something big at this point, I assume, if there's like a brass you know, we section. just kind of like, it was, it, was, it was sort of like me and Eric were just putting something together for yeah. a gig. So we got the name Spin Doctors, and we got Aaron, our drummer, into the into the mix. And then we did that gig, and after that, like it was obvious we had something going on. We had a great musical rapport right from the get go, yeah. and um, and Aaron was amazing. And Aaron was playing with tons of different bands, but Eric and I we we left something up at Delta Phi at the at the frat. So we go back up the next morning. And it's now the sun is out. We've been up all night. We played until dawn and just making shit up as we went along. It was like a crazy, crazy gig. And I mean, people took their clothes off. It was like this insane show. It's you legendary. Just in the zone. Yeah, it was nuts. And we go back to get a microphone or something like that. And there's a guy standing in the street and he's just like, did you guys see the band last night? And we're like, Eric and I exchange a glance. And we're like, no. You know, what are they called? And I guess like spin doctors. And we were like, Cool. That's a cool name. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, man. We were like, have you seen him before? I don't know why I asked him that. I was just like, have yeah. you seen him before? He was like, yeah, I've seen him a couple of times. It was the morning after our first gig. He was like, yeah, they're the cool band around town now. So Eric and I were like, one show. One show, yeah. Already people were lying about having seen us a bunch of times. So we were like, okay, we got something going on here. Aaron was playing with tons of different bands. We knew like... We had to just get on the ball and start getting gigs. And the best way to keep Aaron in the band was to get paying gigs. Yeah. So we just kind of took it from there. We just started playing all these bars in New York. And, and back then, you could play every night in New York. We called it the Manhattan Tour. We played every night for, you know, like a year and a half in New York. Not absolutely every night, but almost every mm-hmm. night. And somewhere along the line, um, you know, Aaron Aaron brought Mark. And Aaron was doing in another band with Mark. And he was like, <laughs> he was like you know, I know this guy... I mean, his playing would be great in this band, but he's kind of an asshole. I don't know if you guys would like him. <laughs> Finally, we were like, well, let's meet him. Let's play yep. with him. And, um, you know, we played with him. And, and uh, you know, from the first bar, it was sure. like he was the guy. And that was like, you know, about six months into things. You know, we'd gone through a bunch of bass players and we started playing uh, with Mark. And, you know, we worked really hard. But relatively, you know, a year or two after that, we were we were signed and making records. Did it feel crazy at 19 to move to New York City to be a singer? I was 19 when I met Eric and I moved to New York the next year. So 20 years old. Okay. Yeah. It Same was, difference. It was nuts. Yeah. yeah. It was, I moved to New York in 1988 with $100 and an acoustic guitar. Was there sort of the notion that, you know, once I blow through this, I'm moving back home or... Did you give yourself a deadline or? No, it was less, it was more vague than that. Yeah. It was like, I'm going to move to New York and I'm just going to like see what I see can what do. Yeah. yeah. I um, played in the subway a lot. And then like I, I spent the summer playing in the subway and just being really hand to mouth. The Blues Traveler guys, a bunch of them were in this jazz program. They were playing gigs, mm-hmm. but they were also in this jazz program at Parsons. And so I called my dad up and I was like, you know, I don't want to get a music degree but will you put up the money for me to do, like, to go to this school? If I'm only there for a year or a semester or something like that, you know, I think it's a great way for me to meet other musicians. Yeah. I'll study my ass off and learn everything I can about music. But what I really want to do is just be with a bunch of musicians and try and put a band together. And that's when I ran back into Eric again. That's where I met Aaron Comis, our drummer. Um, and I learned, you know, I did one semester 
And after a semester, the spin doctors were like gigging and, and I was making enough money to, to eat. And I quit school and just did spin doctors full time. So obviously when people are coming out to a spin doctor show, there's like a certain set of songs that they want to hear many of them off of the first record. I mean, how do you avoid getting complacent? I get on stage and there's like people out there. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's no like complacency yeah. for me because I'm like, oh, crap, there's a whole bunch of people here. I have to like play my ass off. You know, it's just an instinct. You know, it's like just... um get in front of people you want to throw down and there's like you know there's something about this band like we're friends now but you know we haven't always gotten along so there's I mean, like to, to, to be fair the two stories that you told me were the fight that you got in where you didn't talk to each other for a year and then the member who came on who was introduced as an asshole, as an so asshole that, yeah I mean, this, this is not a recipe for a successful long-lived band um from the outside not not from a like not from a like not from um, a pragmatic standpoint not from a like personality yeah. like i'm gonna pick out four personalities of people who are going to work together well people who you have to like shove into a van and tour yeah. the the country and the world together yeah it was, it's been torture at times it's really been bad you know like i i bug those guys as much as they bug me but it's not about it's not about us being like best pals it's mm. about it's about the music yeah so like there's an expectation in this band like i don't care i don't care what's if are you too sick to do the gig then we'll call up, we'll call the gig. But if you're not too sick to do the gig, like get the fuck out there and do your job. You know, everybody's just expected to bring. It's actually really funny because the last couple of years before a gig, I'll be like, guys, you know, I'm in kind of a weird mood. I didn't maybe didn't get enough sleep. So I think all I have is my B game tonight. And they're like, OK, Chris, <laughs> I go out. <laughs> it's a way of like taking the pressure off okay. of me. And like basically they're like, Chris's B game is better than his A game. Like I'll say it in front of people yeah. and I'll walk off the van and people will be like, what is that? What's going to happen? They're like, hey, don't worry. His B game is much better than his A game. <laughs> but it is a job. And no matter like how wonderful your job is and how lucky and blessed you are to do it and how many people in the world would give a limb to do it, there are nights when it is just a job. Not many. No. Not many. You know, it's it's um the thing is, okay, here's like the upside of all of this. We play so fucking well together. When we get on stage, finally, there's like aggression in the music, but like... It's like this fabulous game of like kick the can. It's like being on a sports team where you can like pass the ball behind your back yeah. and and like th that person's just going to catch it and you're like kind of floating above the ground. I can sort of hear something that one guy in the band's doing and musically kind of push up against it and then they react. You know, our passing game is incredible. And we can take a song and play it. You would never know that we were horsing around, but we're just totally screwing around the whole time. And it's not like we're getting up and playing Two Princes as a bossa nova. It's just subtly, subtly we're pushing and pulling on the on the rhythm, on the feel of the song and we know each other so well that it's like you know these little sidelong glances and these little grins and somebody does something and you don't even look at the guy but you respond musically to what they're doing in ways that are sometimes full-on ad-lib and other ways that are just completely inside of the rhythm of the music and the melody of the music but you're just pushing things enough so that everybody's kind of feeling it so it's just really fun you're never going through the motions no nah, because it's everybody's screwing around all the time but in a very subtle kind yeah. of way it's not like the kind of thing where the audience is like look at them fucking around but if, if somebody's like a really got great ears and is like a you know knows the band really well they can kind of see that we're sort of screwing around if you never saw the band before you just hear like this bubbling kind of spontaneous sort of feel and that's that's what you get when you when you've been playing for such a long time and each guy in the band has this this idea of virtuosity like in our band 
in the you know musical culture of our band the purpose of virtuosity is not to be able to execute some kind of like musical gymnastic it's not technical for the sake of technical it's not showing off no it's what you want is to be so fluent in your instrument that you can purely express your personality. And I, I think that in spite of the fact that some of the musical motifs of the Spin Doctors are somewhat derivative of other bands that have gone before us, I think the essence of our originality is that each guy can play his personality on the instrument. If people worry about originality, and you can't attain originality by striving for originality. If you can express yourself fully on your instrument, express your personality, fully you don't even have to think about originality because you will be original because the only thing that's original in this world is a human personality so you know where people go wrong is they're like i'm trying to do something new yeah you know you just do you because you're new that's why we're still together after 30 years it's certainly not because we're like madly in love with each other as people we do we do really care sure. about I mean, each you other you said that it, it sounds like that that was a relatively recent occurrence that like now you guys are actually offstage friends no i mean over the years very quickly like we yeah. developed a strong like emotional rapport to speak personally for myself you know i had a terrible family life growing up mm. so these guys are are like actually enact like a sibling you know relationship a familial there's a familial core that these guys for me enact and you spend more of your life in the band than you did before yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I've been in this band like my entire adult life, yeah. my entire adult yeah. life. I was still like something of a juvenile, especially emotionally when this band formed. So like, don't get me wrong. I love these guys. I love them. Like, I really love them, each and every one of them individually and as a group. But they drive me batshit. And we didn't, like, get together as a band because we were friends. And that that dynamic of, of like, gunslinging, like, we're sort of like this, we're sort of the four, yep. you know, best guys our age doing this. That thing has sort of, even though we, we uh, really care about each other now and have for a very long time we still drive each other ape shit and it's not the our friendship isn't the driving force behind it it's it's our musical rapport i mean i assume when you get four again four guys who are the best at what they do around in a place like new york there's going to be a lot of egos at play tremendous amount of <laughs> tremendous amount of ego and we're all very different personalities yeah. too so though that uh play of ego mm. is different for each guy so it's not like we got four guys who are all sort of like operating on the same kind of like ego trip. Each guy sort of has like a different – it takes on like a different manifestation with each guy. So it's 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 pretty complicated. I mean the vast majority of bands, of, of musicians that I talk to in bands tell me that obviously everyone wants everything to kind of be a democracy. But in order for things to function well, it's got to be a little dictatorial. What we try to do is have spheres of influence. The different guys like – um, Aaron, our drummer, is like, he's sort of the wisest, most level-headed, even-handed guy in the band. The drummer. The drummer, That yeah. is not... I know, it's <laughs> it's funny, right? Ironically, like, the person who keeps the beat for the band is usually the least reliable. <laughs> I know, it's pretty funny. He is really kind of the, you know, the bedrock yeah. of the decision-making process. So mm. generally, Aaron has this sort of gravitas of personality. He's not mm. a pushy guy at all. Somehow... A lot of the time, what he says goes. For the most part, it's it's good. I think Aaron is like a little bit too conservative sometimes and will err on the side of safety mm. and, you know, sort of consistency. I'm the one who wants to like jump off of a building. That brings up an interesting point, which is you start this band, you had success like 
I, I don't want to say it right out of the gate, but it, things seem to relatively quickly. happen pretty quickly. Yeah. So this first album comes out and it's all over the place. The impulse must be to keep doing exactly what you were doing to try to sort of like recreate the circumstance and everything that went into that first record in order to stay on top. Um, Yeah, which isn't what we ended up doing, you know, and I don't think we we didn't negotiate that part of our career very successfully. We were under tremendous pressure from the record company yeah. to have another hit and to have one like right away. So we didn't take any time off. You know, we'd been on the road at that point. We sort of had to work the record twice because um, we did the like hard slogging van work to get the record deal. Then we made the record. We worked the record for like two years and nothing was happening. The record company wanted us to come back and make another record. And we said, no, we're going to stay out. We believe in this record. And then a couple things fell into place and the record took off. So we worked it for another two years. By the time it was time to make the next record, we'd been touring nonstop. I hadn't been home for more than a couple of days in a row in years. So the record company, instead of like giving us a little bit of time off, we all just like went down to Memphis into Arden Studios and made like a second record. It's funny because this that's the Lost Spin Doctors record. We we made this record. I have a feeling that record is amazing. I haven't heard it since we since we made it. How does that happen? The record label was like, no, you're not putting this out. It's too raw. It wasn't pop enough. It wasn't commercial. It enough. was super raw. It was like they scraped us off the road, dumped us in the studio. Everybody like needed a break, but we were hot from the road. Like we've been playing, we're playing our fucking brains out. The band is is at its peak popularity. You go and you pour your heart and soul into this thing, and it doesn't even come out. I mean, that must be. Well, yeah, we went. We, we went back into the studio up in New York, and we redid the record. It's the same record. It's that sort of like Dylan thing of the same record recorded. In you two know, places. honestly, like I don't even. I don't. I don't know what the. I don't remember yeah. like that. That time in Memphis, I remember very vaguely. Mm. Like it. It was. Um, I remember like eating some barbecue. I remember like taking a bath in my hotel. I remember there was like an alligator skull in the studio. Yeah. You know, I just remember like little snippets of this and that. It's we had like, a Polaroid. It's like that Proust, that Proust memory of yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of like this dappled and <laughs> this dappled sort of you yeah. know uh, impressionistic, work, yeah, yeah, of pastiche. So I don't, I don't even know. But you know, people who've who've heard that record are like, you guys should have put that record out. It was it was yeah. murder. And then um, pretty soon after that, Eric left the band. You know, we just kind of spun apart. And uh, no pun intended. God, that was so lame. <laughs> um, the merry-go-round kind of broke yep. and it was um several years before the band got back together and that was that was you know that was like a spot where the personality conflicts you know we weren't able to communicate to the point where we could stay together you know so that happens after you go back into the studio re-record it and the record comes out yep and we were touring that record and then you know just Honestly, like, we should have been in group therapy or something yeah. like that. Like, we should have done, like... The Metallica. Yeah, we should have done, like, the Metallica thing. Yeah. It even occurred to me back then, and yeah. Metallica hadn't done that yet. It actually occurred to me back then, like, we should be sitting in a room with, like, a mediator, you know, with a with a psychology degree, like a somebody with who can prescribe medication yeah. and, like, you know, get everybody, like, on the same page. What was the strain at the time, though? Was was it the frustration of that record not having come out, or was it just sort of the strain of having been together for it was so lack long? Of, it was lack of communication. Yeah. It was lack of communication and sweeping things under the rug, you know, and just, like... Bottling things. Bottling up resentment yeah. and, um, you know, it's just, like, four guys... Who like fundamentally care about each other? Because we've been thrown together, you know. I, I, I've I've um, been sort of, you know, I've accentuated the 
differences in the band. Even after a year of just being thrust together the way we were, obviously, like, there's a tremendous amount of regard mm-hmm. between the, the, the people in the band. We all really cared about each other. And so we would, like, hurt each other's feelings because we were just young and stupid and not very good at communicating. And nobody really, we never really dealt with it. And um, after, like, five or six years of that, it was just like, this band was this, like, seething, festering cauldron of mutiny and resentment. And, you know, we really needed somebody. Like, there was no way we could sort it out ourselves. And one night, Eric just stormed off stage, and that was it for several years. This is a conversation I have with a lot of uh, indie rock bands, you know, who get to a certain age where the trajectory has been up and up and up and then sort of at a certain point it plateaus and, you know, perhaps it goes down. The question is, is once that starts happening, when, you know, when the rocket ship is no longer on the way up, whether it makes sense to keep going forward. I mean, when everything is like firing on all cylinders and everything is going great, it's probably a lot easier to sort of forgive those frustrations in people and just, you know, hang on for dear life. Well, you know, it's funny because... Early on, our objective, and we this was a voiced objective, was to make a living playing music. And that was it. We were like, let's take this as far as we can take it. If we get some hits and we're on the radio and we make a million dollars, we're not going to be like, no. But the objective was just to make a living playing music. I think it's still kind of that way. We were like, if we make a living playing music, we're going to be in the 90th percentile of all musicians everywhere. If we don't have to have like another job. It was very clear very quickly that we had something that was very appealing to a lot of different kinds of people. And then we had some kind of like really special thing going on. You know, at this point in our career, I think we're like just happy to still be around with the original guys. Making good money, playing. The people are coming out. Playing, people still want to see yeah, the show. People still want to yeah. see the band, and people still like our music. And and um, there's fan, there's new fans. You know, there's like young fans that are like <laughs> discovered us. You know, through YouTube and Spotify, and you know, because like Two Princes is on, is on a million playlists. You know, and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, and so it's it's cool. And then you know, there's like parents who listen to it or whatever. You know, it's like we're one. Of, somebody said to me like. Back in the day, they were like, your CD was the one we could play in the car. Because our parents liked you guys. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to hear Nirvana, you know, and we didn't want to hear, hear like Neil Sedaka or whatever that parents were listening to. Yeah. I don't know what the parents were listening to. We didn't want to hear our parents' music. They didn't want to yeah. hear like Peter, Paul, we, and Mary. Or, yeah, we didn't want to hear yeah. Peter, Paul, and Mary. They didn't want to hear, you know, Soundgarden. So we could put the Spin Doctors on and everybody everybody was happy in the car. That was not something we set out to do. As you were discussing the live set, you used the word aggressive. Yeah. Which is like not in a million years a word I would ever think of to describe <laughs> the band's music. Yeah, I know. But next time you listen to like yeah. Pocket Full of Kryptonite, you know, like there's like an aggressiveness. Mm. What I mean is like we haven't, we play like we play offensively, you know, like we're coming at the music. Yeah. It's not like we're letting the music like just sort of like la di da. I've seen you perform some of the songs with an acoustic guitar, and I think that's an interesting distillation of it because you do kind of like play it like a punk song. You yeah. do play power chords and you play them. In a very in a yeah. very punk rock like manner. <laughs> yeah, well I grew up yeah. listening to punk rock. I grew up listening to a lot of really hard stuff. I was never into heavy metal or speed metal or any of that kind of stuff. But like I I listened to tons of Ramones, saw the Ramones a bunch of times live. I listened to like Minor Threat and DOA and um hardcore. Dead, Dead Kennedys, tons of hardcore. I was super into hardcore. Um and um the cramps mm-hmm. and um Lou Reed and and you know, I I liked, I liked, I liked like heavy 
stuff as a kid. Since it is such a cohesive unit, the end result is a product of everybody doing their thing. But is that the place you're kind of starting from with a lot of this music? Nah, you know, I've always, I was super into blues. Yeah. I was super into funk, you know, and um, I always wrote a lot of different kinds of stuff. I've never come at writing songs from a genre point of view. I've never set out to write a song that was of a certain genre. I like, I have an idea for a song and I, I always say this is like a song is a proposition. You see to that proposition through like composing music and writing a lyric and you find, you kind of like, what does this song mean? What is this proposition? What are, what are the ramifications of this idea? And then you write a lyric that all makes sense and hangs together and all pertains back to the title um, where every line has like some kind of a literary device or some reason for being a good line and supporting the entire proposition. That but you've but maybe with. you start with an interesting phrase. Yeah, you start with a phrase, you start with yeah. a, with a concept or, you know, you might be just thinking about, you know, some kind of a relationship and you have like a little bit of an insight. A lot of times it's a phrase. A lot of times it's a line, mm -hmm. a title. Something just sort of sounds good. Something that, yeah, that sounds good, but you're like, there's a song in that. You have this yeah. instinct and you write the music to support that. Sometimes you're coming from a riff, you know, and you're just singing da 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 do 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 and eventually that turns into mm -hmm. some kind of a lyric. But I've always been sort of like, oh, wow, I wrote a little jazz standard, you know? Yeah. Or, oh, wow, I wrote kind of a rocker here, you know? But I never, I never like, I'm never like, I'm going to write a reggae song. You know, musicians think in terms of musical ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, journalists and purveyors of music have to categorize yeah. those things so people know what part of the store or where on the internet to look for them yeah. or what category to look for them. Like, it's never been – it's really funny because I have tons of conversations in interviews and outside of interviews where people are asking me to define like this, like these genre concepts, you know, in terms of my music. And I'm always just like, I don't think about it that way. Yeah. I just don't think about it that way. You lost your voice for what? A full year. Yeah. How does that happen? Um, it's what the doctors call idiopathic, which means they don't know. As in the doctors are idiots? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, one doctor was like, we are idiots. We don't know. Was like laryngitis for a year? No, I had a paralyzed vocal cord. So my right, right, your, my right vocal cord was paralyzed. Huh. So I couldn't move over and meet the left vocal cord to produce sound. You couldn't talk? I could only whisper. Yeah. It was a nightmare. It sucks. What do you do while you're waiting for your voice to come I'll back? I'll just be really depressed and play a lot of chess. <laughs> I, took a, I took a ton of voice lessons, even with my voice messed up. Hoping um, that you could sort of force your way back into... Yeah, you know, just keeping the, keeping the, the apparatus kind yeah. of moving, trying to trick my brain into thinking... I was going to a, a speech pathologist too. A lot of people think speech pathologists only help you with lisps, yeah. but they, they know the, the entire sure. mechanic of producing sound. So I was doing like tons of weird exercises, like standing on elastic bands and like pulling the elastic bands while I was vocalizing. And my voice came back, went to the doctor. He was like, this is great. You sound great. I'm going to look at those vocal cords again. Obviously they're moving. And he looked and he was like, whoa. And I was like, what? And he was like, your vocal cord is still largely immobile. So I've learned to sing with one vocal cord. It hasn't gone away. It didn't come back, yeah. How long ago was this? <laughs> like a year or two years this ago. A couple of years ago. <laughs> you had been doing the same thing, you know, again, professionally since you were 20. Yeah. And all a of a sudden... Longer. All of a sudden you're unable to do it. Are you considering kind of the way forward in life or, or you know, or what you're going to do with yourself if you can't ever sing again? Yeah, I mean, I got really depressed. You know, I, I like... I'm a pretty limited person emotionally, and I synthesize most of my 
feelings through music. So you didn't have an outlet. They didn't have an outlet. And so that was really, really crazy for me. A lot of really dark stuff came up because, you know, I, I grew up in a really rough household. My dad's ex-wife used to like kick my door down in the middle of the night and scream at my brother and I. And so I had some like post-traumatic stress stuff that was coming up because I didn't have like music to sort of work it out. Yeah. You'd been able to push that down. Yeah. For a and, long time. And you had a catharsis through music. Yeah. Catharsis music. through music. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was a really, really rough time. I, I started writing this like epic poem that I wrote like 20 or 30 stanzas of. Like a Homeric sort of? Yeah. Um, it's based on Xenophon's Anabasis. Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's really like bloody and gory. I think I, I, one of these days I got to like finish it because it's, I mean, it's going to take me 10 years to write because it's. You sort of like reverted back to like teenage mode of just like writing like moody poetry. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Um, I did a lot of writing, but I was mostly journaling. And then I was working on this weird, this weird poem. And I'm in like, um, I'm in this band with these three guys, these three rock stars from Norway called the Canoes. And we had this event. It was like a wedding. It was like paid a lot of money. And, you know, I was like, guys, I, I don't know if I can like do it, you know? And they were like, just come. And I was like, but you know, I don't know. Like they were like, we don't care. Like we don't care if you can sing or not. So I went and I sang this gig. My voice was really like weak and kind of whispery. And you know, they were just joking around. They were like, Chris can sing better with one vocal cord than most people can sing with three. <laughs> people don't have three vocal cords. So that was really that was really cool. Um, I couldn't have done a spin doctor's gig. This is more of a like acoustic kind of thing. And they they played really quiet. And we did this wedding, and and that really kind of like gave me a lift. I mean, you were like asking like what. I was thinking, like, what could I do? I thought maybe I'd be a, you know, I like writing. So I was like, maybe the only thing I could think of was to be a novelist. Luckily, I got my voice back and I'm singing again. Were you writing music in the meantime? I only wrote one song. I wrote um, the song from Angels on Angels and One-Armed Jugglers, mm -hmm. um, You're Gonna Need Someone. Um, I wrote that for my wife yeah. when I was really, really depressed. I just wrote that one song. How does going through an experience like that impact the, the music-making process going forward? I mean, it's sort of like... It's not a near-death experience, but in a sense, it sort of is, right? You hear these stories about people who, like, come close to death and all of a sudden, you know, have a new lease on life. Yeah. You you know, it's funny because human beings are so transitory. Yeah. You know, I came back and I was like, you know, I was like, I got to live every day, like, you know. And then, like, yeah. experience <laughs> kind of fades and you're like, kind of, you yeah. know, back yeah. to... But I've always had a sense of urgency about music, you know? Yeah. I don't really need to, like... Well, what what ended up happening is I as I as I made my solo record, and I definitely like when it was time to make that record, I was sort of like toying around with like different concepts of how to do the record. And I was thinking about well, you know, if I do like an acoustic thing, it'll be sort of easier and less expensive. And I came back, and the first thing I did was like I hired Sean Pelton, the Saturday Night Live drummer. You know, I was like, we're gonna get Sean Pelton, like. Yeah. The only drummer I know who's as good as yeah. Aaron. You know, I just went all out on that record, and I'm really glad that I did. You know, and there was definitely the fuel, you know, for that decision came from losing my voice. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to make, like, the record of a lifetime. I get, you know, S Steve Steve Bernstein on the slide trumpet. And I just got everybody. I got, like, the, the best people I could find. Just a bunch of musicians that I know. But I just got all my favorite musicians on that record, and it came out great, you know. So it it's the big thing for me was realizing how important music is to me, and like my wife stayed by me, and um, and like my daughter, 
you know, it's like, of course I love my wife and I love my mm-hmm. daughter, but you know, it was such a bad moment. You lost the thing that you thought defined you. Yeah. Yeah. And what I learned was that it's love that defines me. It's the people, I don't need to like sing. I don't need to entertain for people to love me. My wife and my kid, you know, my buddies in Norway and the guys in the band, you know, they all, they love me even if I can't sing. There you go. That was Chris Barron of the Spin Doctors who just celebrated their 30th anniversary last month. Chris also has a uh, pretty new solo record out now called Angels and One-Armed Jugglers. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you have to get your podcasts. Send us some feedback. It's rwildcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwildcast.com. Tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. You can like us on Facebook and um, that's about it for this week's Instagram because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 